Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. We are continuing our fall sermon series this morning, The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire. In this series, we want to give serious thought to what it looks like to embrace the agenda of Jesus and embody his way of radical love. As we seek to navigate this election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth lead us and show us what it means to be faithful to God in these tumultuous times. We began the series last week by reflecting on how Jesus said that his disciples are to be known by their love. I said that judging by the church's reputation in America and what we're observing in the media, something is definitely amiss with our witness today. And I called us to remember who we are and invited us to return to the way of Jesus, the way of love, not of trusting in political power and winning with the weapons of the world. And because this series really builds on itself week to week, if you missed that message, I want to encourage you to go back and and listen to it. Remember, whether you're a regular attender at Grantham or you're a podrishner, you can follow this series through the Grantham Church podcast, however you like to subscribe and listen on the go. And please know that I am grateful, really, truly grateful, that you would take the time to listen and apply these messages to your life. So today is the second sermon in our series, and we're going to look at how Jesus purposely chose to not to use worldly kingdom power or to let himself be co-opted by the parties of his own day. Instead, we'll see how Jesus refused to be pigeonholed or to be identified with any political ideology and how he manifested a kingdom that is about power under, not power over. Also, we'll see how he called his first disciples, a rather ragtag group of misfits with divergent political views to set aside their political opinions on how the kingdoms of the world ought to operate in order to follow him and discover a third way to live within the empire. But before we jump into today's message, I want to let you know that I've put together a suggested reading and resource list to go along with this series. You can find this list at our website, Uh, with this sermon entry or click on the link in the podcast notes. There you'll find some books and some videos that I believe will be helpful to you, some of which have influenced my own thinking over the years. So check those out if you're interested. And secondly, I want to remind you that we want to follow the Jesus of history as well as the Jesus of faith. As I said last week, the Jesus of history ought to be the same Jesus that we're following and worshiping today, both in the life of our mind and in our actual experience. It's critical that we get this right. Our portrait of Jesus can make all the difference. As A.W. Tozer once said, your portrait of God is the most important thing about you. That's because we live and we act out of our portrait of God, which is why I spent last week showing us how Jesus' way of love is rooted in his very 
character, the portrait of God we read about in Philippians chapter 2. So let's be honest about the Jesus we're picturing in our head, not just what he looks like, that's important, but also what he believed, what he taught, and what he expects from us. And let's acknowledge that there are all kinds of competing portraits of Jesus at work in the church and in society. For example, in the academy, there is a a field called historical Jesus studies, which is the pursuit of discovering the real Jesus of antiquity. And scholars have come up with all kinds of portraits of Christ over the years. Some folks have wanted to read the Gospels through their own post-enlightenment filters and cultural lenses and see Jesus as a moral teacher, not divine, just a moral teacher who simply wants us to be nice to each other. Just hug a peasant near you is the idea. And some see Jesus as a cynic preacher or Jesus the prophet or Jesus the Jewish reformer or Jesus the revolutionary or Jesus the Gnostic guru or philosopher. Of course, to get any of these portraits, you have to pick and choose what is actually historical and what you believe is reliable or what you like and don't like, which is what I think it comes down to, because the New Testament Jesus doesn't fit neatly into any of these categories. And then think about the many portraits of Jesus that we find within American pop culture. We, of course, have the white Jesus, the Republican Jesus, the progressive Jesus, the nice therapist Jesus, Saturday Night Live's Jesus Unchained from a few years ago, the hipster Jesus, the social activist Jesus. And if if you've ever seen uh, the movie Talladega Nights, we have those who only want to picture uh, baby Jesus, who is forever in a state of infancy, cute, cuddly, tame, and silent in a manger. Many would prefer that Jesus. But if you've been paying attention lately, many folks, especially I think millennials and Gen Z, are desiring to know the first century Jesus and all of his complexities, mystery, and subversiveness. And not just as the timeless teacher, preacher, and prophet, but specifically the Jesus who was from an oppressed minority, the Jesus who wasn't born into privilege, the Jesus who had been Uh, once been a a refugee after his parents fled from a ruthless king. The Jesus who, unlike the many portraits that we've created over the past 500 years, wasn't white and wasn't of European descent, but instead looks something like this. This is the portrait of Jesus we've included in the series graphic. You might recognize it if you're on social media. A few months ago, a a Dutch artist used AI technology to reimagine what Jesus might have looked like in the first century. And he took a variety of artistic renditions of people who lived before the era of photography, including paintings and statues, icons, and whatever else was available. And he fed those to an artificial intelligence program to see what would emerge out of the combination and commonalities among all of them. And this is the picture it produced fascinating, isn't it? And my intention with choosing to use this picture in the Politics of Jesus series is, I hope, to help us to see Jesus differently. But not just his brown skin and brown eyes, though I do hope it humanizes Jesus and prompts a reframe of our faith. I do think it has the ability and power to do that, but also to provoke us to reconsider his teachings, his example, and his politics. 
If you don't know, politics comes from the Greek word polis or city, and it pertains to the way society is organized and how human communities function. Therefore, this series is about what Jesus thinks about that, how he envisions real transformation and human flourishing, and why we should share his passion and perspective about the way the kingdom comes. So this is what we're doing in this series. Thanks for coming along for the journey. And before we go any further, let's just stop and pray and ask God uh, to speak to our hearts as we open them up to him. Father, we, we once again recognize that we need your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you take my words, that they would be your words, and that they would find a resting place in our hearts, that they would change us, that they would be seeds to growing something new in us and in your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus and the Third Way. That's the title of the second message in our seven-week series. And as I said earlier, I want us to think more deeply about how Jesus didn't choose the expected messianic pathway of worldly kingdom power. But instead, he chose to be a king with a kingdom that is unlike any upon the earth. So let's begin by reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. If you want to turn there in your your Bible, you can go ahead and do so. And while you're doing that, uh, let me set the context for us. Many of you will recall that this is the scene after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And the baptism of Jesus marks a turning point in his life. Up to this point, he had lived pretty much in obscurity, right? But he's now about to accept his messianic identity and begin his ministry. But before he does that, he goes into the Judean desert for 40 days, this being a picture of Jesus embodying Israel's time in in the wilderness wanderings, where Jesus prays, and he prepares himself for the next three years of ministry, and he endures testing and temptation by the devil in the process. Now, Satan has already tested Jesus twice, saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Messiah, then first, he says, turn these stones to bread, and then the second, he says, throw yourself down from the highest place in the temple. And now in verse 8, the third temptation comes. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And the devil said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now, there are a few things I think we need to know about what's going on with these temptations. Number one, the devil is likely tempting Jesus as we are all tempted. That being, I think, in our heads, right, in our thoughts. This is how Satan comes to Jesus. Number two, as Donald Crable points out in his classic book, The Upside Down Kingdom, these are not random temptations just so you can see how Jesus didn't sin. But instead, they symbolize three social institutions that kings must control, that messiahs must control. That is the bread, which represents the economy, the temple, which represents religion, and the mountain here in this passage, which represents wielding political power over a king's domain. Now, if you've never seen the temptations that way, stop and think about this. 
Think about what the gospel writers are trying to tell us. This is Jesus deciding what kind of Messiah he is going to be and how his kingdom will operate. Look at verse 9. The devil tells Jesus that he is in possession of the worldly kingdoms and he can give them to Jesus. A claim that Jesus does not dispute. He doesn't dispute this. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, we're told that Satan has power over the kingdoms of the world. Three times in the Gospels, we hear Jesus refer to Satan as the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. And Paul says he's the ruler of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2. And then in 1 John 5, 19, we read that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So this is why Jesus doesn't dispute this. So don't miss this. Don't miss it. Because we not only learn something here about earthly governments, but we also learn something about the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. It's not like anything that this world has known. Still, this is a real temptation. After all, the Messiah is supposed to be the king of kings and rule over all the nations. So this thought for Jesus, or the temptation in this case, should be expected. That is, that Jesus should reign and rule by following in the expected path of kings, like King David, right? Jesus comes in the line of David, or even an Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, right? I mean, that's what you would expect, And yet Jesus is ready for this. He's ready to resist the offer and reject the path of political power. For Jesus and later the early church, he will not choose the the Roman way or the Jewish way, but instead he'll choose a third way. The third way is political, to be sure. It does have something to say about the polis, but its economy, its religion, Its politics are nothing the world has ever seen. The third way of Jesus isn't weak. We need to say this. We need to know this. It isn't weak. There is a power there, but it's about power under, not power over. It's about Calvary love, self-sacrifice, and at times, patient suffering, even if it means giving your life as you go about being faithful to God, which is how we should see what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He was living faithfully to God and a faithful life for Jesus, living into this messianic identity, ended on a cross. And despite persecution in those earliest days, hear this, the early church saw explosive growth by simply being filled with the Spirit, living out the teachings of Jesus with simple faith and adopting an amazing evangelistic strategy. It was called patience. I'll talk more about that next week, but for now we need to know that this is the way that the early church followed Christ up until about the fourth century when the emperor Constantine claimed to have had a conversion experience and then pandered to some three to five million Christians in the empire to support him and help him unify the empire under one God and one emperor, one leader. And from there Christendom was born. The church militant and triumphant was born. The Christian faith became the religion of the empire, and for about a thousand years, Christianity's relationship with the state almost seemed to go unquestioned. That is, until the Anabaptists of the 16th century Reformation. They dared to call for the separation of the two kingdoms. They said that Constantine was the great dragon that led the church astray. 
But still, even then, in the 16th century, Christendom limped along, even manifesting itself in the founding of this country. And we can still see what's left over from the fusion of our faith with American identity and partisan politics. And as Christendom in America has been grasping for its final breaths, I think, for over the last 30 to 40 years and fighting to stay alive, to keep its power, we have seen a rise in nationalism within the church. And I literally mean within the church. I know you've never experienced this at Grantham, but maybe you have at another church or at least heard stories of the so-called patriotic services held over July 4th weekend in places like First Baptist Dallas. Now, depending on where you are in your walk, you might see this scene differently. But for me, at least for the past 15 years, this idolatrous worship has grieved, sickened, and burdened my soul. And I don't mean this in some self-righteous way but rather as a Christ follower who's convinced that this practice goes against everything Jesus believed, taught, and called us to as kingdom people. That we would try to wrap the God of the universe in an American flag. That we would take the Jesus who envisioned a kingdom made up of many nations and make him subservient to the empire or any political party within that empire. It is so primitive arrogant and blasphemous. It's a wonder that it has lasted this long and that God has put up with it. But I never, you see, would have seen this if I hadn't decided to reread the Gospels with an open heart and mind in my early 20s. It began actually by asking questions like this. What if Jesus really meant what he said? What if his life is meant to be emulated? What if he was showing us how we're called to live and what it means to live in this radically different upside-down kingdom? What if America is just another empire that will one day come to an end, just like all other empires have? And the more I understood the difference between the two kingdoms, the more I could start seeing that American Christians have really just accepted an imperial civic religion with this veneer of Christianity. And I experienced this firsthand back in 2006. Uh, The last uh, church I had served in before uh, a seven-year hiatus, Uh, we were serving there in a church and I was uh, being captured by the teachings of Jesus in a fresh new way and and feeling convicted about rising nationalism in the church and uh, didn't attend this patriotic service. I, I had uh, taken vacation. And when I came back the following Sunday, I learned that there were people in our ministry, uh, people in our student ministry and our teaching ministry, young adults and, and older adults who went to this service but didn't participate. And as you might imagine, this all led to an investigation. What, what is the minister of students and education teaching uh, our people? Uh, that they wouldn't participate. That, that when they were singing the patriotic songs and the flag was marched down the aisle, uh, that, they, that these folks wouldn't stand up. They wouldn't pledge. They wouldn't salute. They wouldn't participate. What's going on here? Well, that investigation uh, eventually uh, led to us leaving that church and, and going into a wilderness of our own to discover uh, what the church really is 
and what we should really believe, what it really looks like to follow Jesus. But I wanted to, to bring this story up because I remember in that time and, and, and during the, this questioning process that we met with several people. We, we heard things like, where in love your enemies does it say not to kill them? I mean, someone actually said that. And then when we questioned them about why they were doing that in the service, why they would march a nation's flag down the aisle of, a, of, a, of the house of God who rules over all the cosmos. And I said, what if Jesus had walked in the building in that moment? And I'll never forget, someone actually said this to me. They said, well, if that were to happen, we would have stopped what we were doing and worshiped Jesus. Now, folks, do you hear the absurdity of that, the idolatry in that? This should grieve our hearts. Uh, Folks, we we do this same thing to Jesus when we kidnap him and recruit him against his will to our political parties. We bring Jesus down to our petty tribalism and reveal that our belief in political power and national identity and our desire for our side to win is more important than Christ and the Christian faith. But pastor, you might say, isn't Jesus on the side of the poor, on the side of the vulnerable, the unborn and the oppressed? And in whatever ways that looks like. And I would say, yes, absolutely. And, and we will talk about that more in the coming weeks. But church, don't be deceived into thinking that any political party, with all of the complexities, the ambiguities with politics, with greed and with people's desire for power, and many other ulterior motives that politicians have, that, that any party could ever fully capture the heart and concerns of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said this to Pontius Pilate before he was crucified. Pilate asked, they say you claim to be a king. Are you a king? And Jesus said this in John 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. What is Jesus saying? Let's be clear. What he's not saying is that my kingdom doesn't really have uh, anything to do uh, with the earth. He's not saying my kingdom is in heaven, far removed from sight and any concerns that you might have about me, Pilate. No, Jesus is saying as he stares into the face of a Roman governor, I'm a king, but my kingdom doesn't work like yours. It doesn't come by force. It doesn't come by threats and violence. Instead, it comes by trusting in power under, not in power over. That's the way stuff really gets done. That's the way things really change. In other words, Jesus is saying, while my kingdom isn't of this world, it is for this world. And make no mistake about it. As Paul will later write, it looks like weakness to the world, but to us who have experienced it for ourselves, it is the power of God unto salvation. And don't forget, this is all the early church had in those first few centuries, and they grew in the midst of opposition. And that's the big difference, you see, between the two kingdoms. Worldly kingdoms can threaten lawbreakers. They can pass endless laws for those sins and, 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 the, and the sins of others who sin differently than us. And, and they can go to war against their enemies, but they can never change hearts. 
They cannot bring the peace and the freedom that they promise. Sure, some levels of it and some kingdoms of the world are better than others, but none can fully be what the kingdom of God is for us. Only the kingdom, only the reign in the rule of God, which always looks like Jesus, can do that. Jesus knew that. He wants us to know that. And he wants us to talk like it and act like we believe it. Not just amen this sermon and think about the other people you hope are listening to it, but apply it to you and then go and do it. Folks, because people's lives are at stake in the future, I believe the future of this nation could very well be dependent upon the church's rediscovery of the Jesus way for such a time as this. So Jesus was charting the third way of the kingdom, which is why he did not join with or too closely associate himself with any party or group of his own day. And look, Jesus had options. Uh, He had options. He could have joined with aristocratic conservative Sadducees who ran the temple, or he could have joined with the pious progressive uh, Pharisees, progressive in the theological sense, or the independent monastic Essenes who lived out in the desert and in caves by the Dead Sea, right? Separated themselves from the world, sort of like we see some Amish doing. He could have just got behind King Herod and become a Herodian. But Jesus thought he was a fox. So he didn't do that. Or Jesus could have joined up with the Zealots or the Sicarii, who were the first century version of Hezbollah or, or let's say the Proud Boys, believing that violent extremism is the answer. Yet Jesus didn't align himself with any of them. Look, that certainly didn't stop people from trying to get him to weigh in and pick a side. A classic example of this is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. It says, The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. So here we go, two parties involved in this passage. Teacher, they said, We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like trying to flatter Jesus. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And the verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, seeing what they were really up to, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. You see, there was this debate. Should we pay taxes or not? It's idolatry. We, we have this image of Caesar. And if we pay these taxes, it supports empire. We can't do this, some people said. But we have to do this or, or they'll squash us. They'll destroy us. So there's this debate. They want Jesus to weigh in. What side of the political issue are you on? Are you on? He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and asked them, He asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them this, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Yeah, they were amazed. You see, Jesus just smoothly avoided a trap and he did a mic drop on his enemies. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That is, his face is on the coin. Well, give it back to him. It's his. 
But then you give to God what is God's, meaning everything else belongs to him. And Jesus dumbfounds his audience and invades being pigeonholed and being forced into their worldly kingdom categories and debates, which solve nothing. You see, Jesus chooses a third way out of this very political predicament. He says, guys, you're, you're thinking about this all wrong. And if you would follow me, you'd eventually see that. For another example, we could take a look at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. This is where a man comes up to Jesus, wanting him not only to settle a family dispute, but also to weigh in on a much larger matter being debated within Judaism of the time. Is it right for the firstborn to receive the entire inheritance of his father when he dies? Or should it be distributed equally among all the children? I mean, that seems fair. Seems American, (laughs) even. But again, look, Jesus refuses to pick sides. He refuses to get lured into the us versus them debates and battles of the day. And it wasn't because Jesus didn't care. It wasn't because he didn't have an opinion. I'm sure he did. Or believe in right and wrong. Of course he did. But he believed that there was another way to doing justice, fairness, and righting the wrongs in the world than plain the worldly kingdom games and getting into those arguments. You see, that's what he wants from his disciples, that we would would be the people who repent and reveal the third way. Think about how Jesus was doing that and choosing his own disciples. In those first 12, Jesus called 12 disciples with divergent political views. Think about it. They were uneducated, rural, Galilean fishermen. I mean, the, the, the Galileans in the north were kind of the way we talk about Southerners, right, uh, here in this country. They talk slower. They talk different. They seem to think a little slower. Some people think this, you know, and, and they, they, they see the world much differently. But then you also have among Jesus' first group of disciples a banker and accountant like Judas who would later betray Jesus. We have Matthew, a tax collector, whom among all of Jesus's uh, inner group, his personal space, would have thought this guy is a traitor. He's a Jew working for the empire, taking this, this uh, idolatrous coin, collecting money to help the empire. This guy is scum, and Jesus calls him to follow along with the others. And then, don't forget, there's Simon the Zealot. I referred to the Zealots just a while ago. These are violent extremists. And Simon would have hated Matthew. How did this guy not reach across the campfire at night and strangle Matthew to death? I mean, that you know, saying um, uh, someone like a, a, a Rush Limbaugh and, and a Hillary Clinton doesn't even compare to the divide that there was between these disciples. And yet, Jesus intentionally chose them and said, follow me. And he wants us to do that in the church today. He calls people together with divergent views and various opinions about all kinds of things and wants to create a third way space for us to hear from the Spirit and hopes that in that space, we will all over time be challenged and changed, moving toward the center where Christ can be found. But you might be wondering, Pastor David, how is that possible? How can followers of Christ all across the political spectrum stay together? committed to Jesus and each other and moved toward the center of his will. Well, uh, according to our Lord, 
It's through our love and desire for unity. That's actually one of the last things Jesus prayed for his disciples before his crucifixion. In John 17, verses 20 through 23, he says, My prayer is not for them, that is, his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And folks, that includes us. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as you are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Look at that. Jesus wants the same unity and the oneness he shared with the Father, made possible by the Spirit to be known in his church. And notice that in his mind, if the power of this Trinitarian unity isn't experienced by his disciples, if they're not brought to complete unity and overcome their differences, the world will not believe in Christ and not know that God loves them, that the gospel is greater than all of our sins. It is greater than empire. And to my knowledge, the only other time that the Gospel of John records Jesus saying something like this is a few chapters earlier when he gave his disciples a new commandment to love one another. As we heard last week in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. By this, love, they'll know. And by this, in John 17, unity the world will know. In other words, if we do not love each other with the love of Christ, and if we're not united in that loyalty and love for the Christ of the Gospels, then the flock will scatter and the world will never be able to believe, nor will people see the beauty and the wisdom of the power under kingdom put on display through the local church. Folks, it's up to us. This is our part. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Friends, the New Testament teaches that our unity is both a spiritual fact and a spiritual fight. In Romans 15, verse 6, Paul instructed us to pursue unity with one mind and one voice. And the Greek word there is homothumadon, which means with passionate fury and, and passionate pursuit of this unity. This is how we show the world that we belong to him. And don't make the mistake of thinking that acceptance equals agreement. Too many evangelicals do this. Acceptance does not equal agreement. You see, when we confuse acceptance and agreement, we will tend to withhold acceptance in order to communicate our disagreement. And Jesus never does this. And when we do this, we move away from Jesus in the third way. We move away from the kingdom. Remember, if we're all pursuing Christ together through love and unity, we can create a third way space for us to come as we are. To be honest, to listen, to be vulnerable, and to be open to the Spirit's ability to transform our hearts and minds, to be more like the heart and the mind of Jesus. Not everyone is going to understand the third way. Not everyone's going to be interested. Some will even scoff at it. I've had some folks do that to me. But I suspect that those who have the hardest time accepting Jesus in this third way message are those who are living either on the extreme right or 
the extreme left within American politics. Think about it. You know, I get it. The third way may sound, not sound as exciting as continuing to live out of our amygdala, this fight-or-flight center of our brain, out of this us-versus-them mindset. But folks, listen to me. While you can raise a lot of money, you can write a lot of books, and you can draw a lot of people on the far right and on the far left. Hear me. You can't solve problems there. You can't love people well there. And you won't find Jesus there. Finally, I want to leave you with some action steps and ways to respond. Because if we don't do something with this message, we just become hearers and not doers. And if we're not doing, then we're not really followers. Amen. Here are three ways that we can follow Jesus in the third way. Real quick. Number one, reflect on ways that you've trusted in power over rather than power under way of Christ. Do this in your personal life. Do this at home with how you relate to your wife, with how you relate to your kids, how you relate to your husband, how you relate to your friends and with your parents, with your family members. And do this as, as, as you interact on social media and reflect are you utilizing, are you relying, are you trusting in power over, or are you living into the power under way of Christ? Which way are you trusting? Reflect on that. Give that some serious thought. Number two, I encourage us to enter relationships with folks who have divergent views and follow Jesus together with them. Purposely do this. Befriend people who have divergent views, just as Jesus did with his own disciples, and as he called them to do, and follow Jesus together. Because, folks, it's not just the other people. It's not just the conservative. It's not just the progressive who is wrong somewhere. We are all wrong. We We are all not where we need to be in aligning our thinking and our living with Jesus. You need them and they need you. Sure, there are the extremes, but don't live in the extremes. Don't focus on the extremes. Come to the center where Jesus can be found. And then lastly, number three, I encourage us today to use our words and influence to create third-way spaces. As I said before, I think some of us will amen this message and share this message and then turn right back around on social media and do things that do not cultivate third-way spaces. Please, I beg you, don't do that. Listen to what's being said. Apply it to your life. Think about it. Ask the Holy Spirit, what difference should this make? How do I live this out? Those questions I'm always asking you. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? I hope you'll do something, church. Because brothers and sisters, if we don't follow Jesus into this third way, no one else will. Father, we want to follow Jesus in the third way. We know that you've called us to be salt and light. 
You've called us to show the world through our love and our unity that, that, that we have an allegiance to you and your kingdom that transcends all other loyalties that the world would see and know the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Help us, God, to live into that. Lord Jesus, I pray for all those who are listening. May you empower us with your Holy Spirit to take the words that we've heard and be doers. In Christ's name we pray.